1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in African American History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Amanda Joyce Hall, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we're excited to talk to Hillary Moore and James Tracy about their new book, No Fascist USA, the John Brown anti clan Committee, and Lessons for Today's Social Movements. I found this to be an important book about fearless organizers and activists who created an anti-racist, anti-imperial social movement that fought against the normalization of white supremacy during the 1970s and the 1980s. Hillary and James, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks. Hi. Great thanks. to be here. Yeah,
1: it's wonderful to have you. Um, Hillary, I wonder if we could begin the interview by you telling us a little bit about yourself.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks. Well, I was born and raised in California, and I grew up in the eastern Sierras. And um, yeah, kind of grew up in an area that was pretty low and working class, middle class, um, and pretty rural and white. And that shaped a lot of my upbringing and my worldview. And it wasn't until I started to become involved in climate justice movements in the Bay Area in my early 20s that I started to realize what the context meant of where I came from. And being around very, very strong, beautiful, brilliant climate justice organizers from communities of color, I started to realize what was at stake in a different kind of way when there are white supremacists, whether they're out or not, you know, organizing in communities and, or just having influence of ideas. Um, So I lived in the Bay area for 15 years and did work with um, catalyst project. And now I work with showing up for racial justice, even though I live in Berlin, Germany, And a lot of my work has centered around um, just white people being able to uh, organize and come together around dignity and having that dignity being really centralized in anti racism and building broad movements that can affect change. And um, James has been both like a mentor and a friend of mine for quite a long time. And it was around Mm -hmm. chumps. Presidency, his like lead up to his camp in his campaign, where um, where white supremacists were becoming more visible and more organized,
0: mm-hmm. and in in that
3: work, uh, also people trying to figure out how to confront that and take action against that. Um, and I went to a counter rally in Sacramento, California, where I also saw a number of anti-racist protesters. Um, Get stabbed by the white supremacists that were having their rally that were evoking Trump's narratives and kind of using that moment to build a broader movement. And, um, it really rocked me. And so I started to just talk with all the people I have a lot of respect for around how to make sense of doing long-term anti-racist community organizing. And then also this new political moment of accelerated and very obvious white supremacy in a way that hasn't been around, at least in this kind of way in my lifetime. So trying to pull together these threads of like anti-racism and anti-imperialism and anti-fascism, and then what does that look like and how accessible can that be? Like So those are Mm -hmm. some of the questions that had me talking with James. And then through those conversations, we just decided a book was necessary.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And James, how did uh, can you tell us about your a bit about yourself and how you came to to this?
2: Yeah, uh, so uh, my name's James Tracy. I uh, currently currently teach at City College of San, Fr- San Francisco uh, in the Labor and Community Studies Department. Uh, ever since I was very young, I've been involved with uh, organizing, mostly housing and local politics, uh, or or uh, organizing uh, in the Bay, in the Bay Area. And um, I first, first started to find out about the John Brown uh, anti-claim committee in 1989, when they sold me a paper, they came to uh, Vallejo, California. I was about 19 at the time. And uh, they were out Doing a counter mobilization against the Nazi skinheads that were trying to organize a white power uh, concert that we talk a little bit about in the book, Uh, and uh, they were doing doing outreach and making the case to uh, myself and our neighbors that we shouldn't join the Nazi skinheads, uh, which was not a hard sell for most of us, given growing up in one of the most racially diverse uh, cities. Uh, in California, if not the United States, uh, and uh, yeah, it was definitely a formative, uh, uh, a formative experience watching all of that go down in in my hometown. Uh, many you know many years ago, I was already politicized in many ways, but this really deepened my understanding of um of white supremacy and um uh, and racism. In the in the United mm-hmm. States at a very 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 young young age, and uh, the experiences stuck with me uh, throughout the years. And so when um, Hillary approached me about uh, doing a book together and possibly studying the John Brown Anti-Klan Committee, of course I uh, I jumped at the chance.
1: Okay, wonderful. Well, let's let's get into let's get into that. Um... So, yeah, so No Fascist USA is um highlights the work of the John Brown Anti-Klan Committee. So let's establish some of uh the information about kind of what it, what are the origins of the John Brown Anti-Klan Committee? Um, who is in its membership and what type of political climate did they grow out of? Yeah.
3: Um well, the John Brown Anti Klan Committee has a number of threads that kind of merged and formed this organization within these very particular contexts. Um, I think one of the most important pieces, and we begin the book in this way, is talking about what it was like in the late 70s for revolutionaries, radicals, people invested in social change, people who were willing to. Have big hopes and and dare to shape society back, and how this political moment had taken a very deep hit. And COINTELPRO, the repressive programs put forth by the federal government to investigate and surveil and also execute different leaders and different liberation movements, had had a very deep impact in both movements. Uh, here in the States, but also then what that ripple effect meant because people were organizing internationally at that time. And so Mm -hmm. that was kind of the moment. uh, We kind of describe it as like on the ropes, like radicals readjusting to a new political terrain. Mm -hmm. And um, in this moment, that kind of also opened up the space for new white supremacist organizing. We talk about in the book how the Klan was trying to remake its image and how it was putting forth um, the idea that for white rights and building organizations around white rights because white people were having uh, their rights infringed if they're not able to get housing, if they're not able to get jobs, if they're not able to get all these things, kind of evoking the idea that people of color or they were explicitly evoking the idea that people of color and black people were somehow taking away their rights if they didn't have them, which was absolutely the opposite was happening. Most programs meant to build up the poor and working class or people of color communities, lift everybody, lift all the boats, lift public education, roads access, like all these different programs, lift everybody. But explicitly racist organizations like the Klan were using that moment to, to basically entrench the idea of reverse racism. So this was the beginning, the bubbling of those kinds of um, ways of thinking about race that really shifted after the 60s. Um, and then also a, a consequence of COINTELPRO meant that a lot of leaders were incarcerated. If they weren't mm-hmm. underground, if they weren't executed by the government, then they were incarcerated. Mm-hmm. And so we talk about it in the book too, how as specifically white people, especially coming out of SDS and, and like and similar organizations, people were white people who were in on anti-racist struggles, were now quickly in on political prisoner support work. So the mm-hmm. terrain in that way really shifted quickly. And in that context, um, there were organizers in New York and people who were committed to anti-imperialism who received a letter from a Black Panther in a New York State Prison who said that the Klan had power and positions within the prison system, within their, the prison that they were being held in, mm-hmm. and basically was like, this has been public for quite some time and our demands are not being heard. And actually, the risk of us being in here, not only in the prison system, but having Klan is like the educator, the teacher in, in the prison system or guards in the system, um, like the harassment and uh, the danger was actually increasing, even though it was publicly known that the Klan was working in the prison. And so basically, when legal sh- channels shut down, People who were incarcerated put out a call asking for there to be an outside pressure, an outside amplifier to Mm -hmm. take action and, you know, um, kind of pose the contradictions or pose the moral imperative of like, this is not the world we want to live in. And also apply pressure and make demands that reflect the demands of the people that are incarcerated. And, you know, depending on the organization that might be listening to that, they may or may not def- reflect the exact demands of the folks on the inside. It might be watered down or translated in a different way. So when the John Brennan site clan committee was forming, it was with people who were working w- in an organization called the inside outside coalition, which was a mix of, formerly incarcerated people and college students working at campuses to kind of get the word out about what, you know, the early, the early aspects of the prison industrial complex were, were looking like and kind of supporting those on the inside. And so it was through that organization, as well as a number of anti-imperialist um, organizers on, in New York City. And kind of the exchange between them and they had established the John Brown book club and they were studying and also adjusting in the political moment. And when that letter came out uh, of the person, his name is Hodari, when he wrote that letter, it was like mm-hmm. a bit of a spark or a catalyst. It was a very clear call of like um, dominant society is not listening to us, not responding and not acknowledging what these demands are and not. Uh, taking action for the amount of risk that these leaders who are now incarcerated get another layer of um, danger that they're in. And so the John Brand Anti-Klan Committee formed in 1997, really with the idea of acting as a buffer between um, Black leaders and people of color leaders in liberation movements in Mm anti-colonial struggles. Acting as a buffer, if the if the state was coming down or if white supremacists were coming down exceptionally hard on that leadership, then they wanted a strategic position of like a group of really committed white people who knew why they would want to take action and kind of get in the way of the incoming. And um, yeah, James can talk more a bit about the the social movement side of like the lineage that comes from John Brown. Or John Brown
2: comes out of? Yeah, well, the John Brown anti Klan community initially, as Hillary um, pointed out, were people from the 1960s and 1970s, new left, that were looking for ways to apply their politics in a completely new, uh, new but not unanticipated context. So we see people from Students for Democratic Society, people who had cut their teeth volunteering in the South. Uh, in the anti-war movements uh whether underground uh form you know forming different co- uh collectives like the midnight special collective and figuring out ways to continue their uh, their politics when we say that the context was different well uh, you know the the right the, the far right at the time had also uh also organized their own movements and they weren't called reactionaries for <laughs> for for no reason right uh, mm-hmm. Most of the things that we associate with the new right aren't necessarily the flashy, violent, skinheads, white Aryan resistance types. Um, also during this time, they built their movements through public policy, the tax revolts, the very beginning shots at the welfare rights uh, wars, and of course funding for public uh, for public schools. Those were all, all initiatives that the right used to build their power up. Uh, it then culminated in uh, the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980, but and then um, always always depended on this section of their their movement, the shock troops, the uh, the the organ the organizations that were willing to uh, take it to the take it to the streets. So we really see these two movements uh, in this time parallel the uh, the growth and the victory of the new right plus the uh, plus you know plus the the outgrowth of the of the new left uh trying, trying to apply their politics uh, in this new era
1: right and it seems that uh the book does a good job of tracing um it's, also, it's, it's illuminating, it's, it's terrible, but it's illuminating um, how the Klan infiltrates local and federal tiers of government and, uh, and, how, and how grassroots activists are responding to this. So um, you write, while increasingly, quote, while increasingly marketing itself, and this mm-hmm. is the Klan, as a nonviolent cultural institution, um, it was still a paramilitary vigilante group that was allowed to operate within the shadow of state institutions. And then you, and then the committee um, emerges kind of a, as a response to the way that um, the Klan and the state become intertwined in what you call the political economy of armed white supremacy that began with settler colonialism and the war on Native Americans and continued to impose itself through the enslavement of Africans, slave patrols, and convict leasing system and Jim Crow and deeply shaped the imperialist nature of U S foreign policy. And then even onwards to, um, shaping the carceral state, um, or mass incarceration of, of this period. So it seems that, uh, the John Brown anti-Klan committee is, is really this radical, um, like a movement against this longer history of racial capitalism in the United States.
3: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And there's one quote, I think maybe towards the end of chapter one or maybe in chapter two, um, when one of the John Brown anti-Klan committee members talks about Reagan and mm-hmm. the inauguration of Reagan and also just what a game changer Reagan really was. Um mm-hmm in shifting terrain, right. And of course, setting things up for Trump, uh, these years later. Um, but the quote is something along the lines of, you know, we hated Ronald Reagan, but depending on how long your view of history is, he wasn't a surprise either. Mm -hmm. And I think that what you just kind of pulled out there resonates with, um, I think Laura Whitehorn said that. And, um, Mm -hmm. The John Brandt Anti-Clan Committee really saw that different formations of white supremacy usually come in response to, especially black political power. So, like mm-hmm. uh, after Reconstruction era is when the Klan like really emerged and served its function to reclaim white power, literally back into the hands of white people after Reconstruction, and we saw. I, we can place the backlash of the 70s and into the 80s of the right wing shift of Reagan. You could place that in relationship to the winds, the global winds, and the big shift in power where different colonized peoples rejected or overthrew or gained a sense of a kind of political autonomy back from their colonizers. And so there's like a big shift in the 60s. Into the 60s with anti colonial movements worldwide setting the world on fire. And then you can see again a retaliation, a backlash of white power, of uh, people who explicitly talk about a white nation. There's that aspect of it. But then there's all these other gradations and other aspects of um, even niceties. I think in chapter. One, two, it also talks about Trello Laughlin, one of the mm-hmm. Austin organizers, and mm-hmm. she talks about um, how her parents were part of the White Citizens Council, and she grew up in Jackson, Mississippi, right, you know, in high school during time of segregation, and like her school, she, she graduated one year before segregation was deemed illegal, even though it persisted in lots of different kinds of ways. But Mm -hmm. um, how she talks about it was the nicer way to be racist, like they would give money to the Klan or they would say like, uh, you know, that they would never take the action in which they could be so obviously attributed to um, Mm -hmm. Klan imagery or Klan uh, persona. But there's also much nicer ways to be racist or to support a white supremacist Mm -hmm. agenda. And so the John Brown anti clan committee really connected the different kinds of white supremacy, the different forms and the different functions, not saying that they are the same, but saying that there is an agenda or there is a direction that is pointing and the police play a kind of role within that pointing of policing and controlling black and brown communities. The U.S. empire globally plays a kind of role in securing mm-hmm. resources and dominating global uh, dynamics. Mm-hmm. And the Klan plays a kind of role domestically, also harassing, controlling, uh, applying pressure to black and brown communities. So they may not be one coherent, coordinated body, but there are different aspects that are pointing to a logic of white supremacy. And so that mm-hmm. was at the core of the organization. That was really the fundamental organizing principle. Of the organization. And I think that is also what sets the organization apart from many other anti-racist organizers or organizations at the time, especially during the anti-clan movement, that was in the 80s, where Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people got into motion because the Klan was on the rise. And so it was very anti-Klan specific. And while the organization, of course, has anti-clan in the name, it really Mm -hmm. brought in these other also international pieces about how white supremacy works and functions, especially in U S empire.
1: Right. And, um, in terms of the philosophy where I saw what I recognize was one of the philosophies of the John Brown anti-clan committee, um, is kind of encapsulated in something that you wrote here. It's, um, they, they believe that white people had the responsibility to assume the risks that black people experienced every day and kind of like emerging from that, uh, thought, I'm wondering if you could explain, um, like what the members of the John Brown anti-Klan committee's relationship to whiteness was, um, and how it shaped how they, uh, they organized how they built alliances with Black and Brown-led uh, organizations, um, and yeah, and just how it affected their activism in general.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll say a couple things and then pass it to James. Um, also, at this time in the late seventies and eighties. Of course, white supremacy was being talked about, but not in any kind of way or scale or common language that it is today. And so I think if we kind of uh, time travel back to this moment where this organization, the purpose is really to support movements for self-determination and to challenge white supremacy in all of its forms. Like That was what the organization was built around. And it's pretty, it's a pretty hard line, like it's quite bold. And then it comes to really interesting conclusions, like interesting conclusions are drawn from that. And my impression of the organization is that they saw themselves and their whiteness, but especially within the terrain of political uh opportunity as a strategic partner, like it was not about... uh Oh no, we're white people. So how do we help us help ourselves not feel so shitty for being white people? And what can we do to support? Or no, what can we do to like give charity? Or what can we do to uh, make up for the fact that we're white? It was always continually uh, assessed. Like, what are the movements for self determination doing? And how do does our Relationship to those movements and supporting, you know, their wins, their exploration of what solutions could be, their vision for another world. Like, how can we consistently keep tuning our relationship to these movements? So, in some way, they often saw the the, the vision or the solution to ending white supremacy is like full support of movements fighting for self determination. That that was fundamentally rooted in another idea and then their vision of another world. Um,
2: yeah, I'll pause there. Well, the John Brown anti-clan committee chose the, chose John Brown, uh, as a symbol, you know, as a message to, uh, you know, the rest of the left and other white white folks, that they were the ones that were going to be serious <laughs> about assuming the risks and that others should as well. Uh, we're all very familiar with the idea of white skin privilege now. It's not that controversial. Mm-hmm. Uh, every college professor talks uh, talks about it. Uh, it's you know, it's it's a very common part of our of our dialogue. But back then, it was it was um, it was a little bit more con- uh, con- controversial as far as how it fit into the. Uh, you know, to the overall political economy, um, and conditions in the United States. One thing when you ask about how they, how they related to whiteness that I think is re- really interesting is that they related it both on a structural and a personal level. So the personal mm. level is encapsulated in that we have to assume the same risks that our comrades of color have been assuming for many centuries, Uh but then the structural part, uh, it's not just about invisible backpacks, for, uh, for them. Uh, the structural part is that they're looking at the ways that white supremacy has been sewn in, uh, sewn into capitalism from from the very beginning, sewn into all of our uh, institutions and expectations mm-hmm. of our society. So they're um. They're drawing from a, from a lot of different intellectual uh, traditions. Certainly, uh, Du Bois uh, being you know being one. The foundational work of Ted Allen uh, and you know thinking thinking through about how uh, how white skin privilege is a strategy uh, used mm-hmm. uh, used by rich rich folks. They're uh, definitely definitely looking at the settler, uh, settler colonial theories put uh, put forward by uh, Jay, Jay, Sakai and embracing quite a few, uh, a few of those that took a very pessimistic, uh, pessimistic assessment of class, one that I don't share a hundred, a uh, hundred percent, but I can certainly understand, uh, you know, where, where it came from. And, uh, and so, but that's, but that's the, uh, you know, that, that, that's the core of the matter. It's not simply a, uh, size your guilt model of dealing with white supremacy. It's not simply about being nice to other people. I'll oh, certainly, uh, that, that's, that's, uh, uh, that was part, uh, part of, part of it being, you know, being a good, a good racial citizen, but it was about challenging the very structures of society that re- reproduced and privileged, uh, white, white supremacy.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
1: The committee's commitment to, um, teaching other white Americans what anti-racist, what it actually means to be anti-racist was, was a part of kind of what you were just saying is that, um, it's to do more than, you know, um, pacify any kind of guilt or anything like that. It is to do more than believe in equality, um, But, or or even believe in certain principles, it's to enact a particular vision of the world. And, um, yeah, I just thought, I just thought that that, um, was one of the most important kind of like, uh, efforts that the committee (laughs) undertook. Mm -hmm. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about, um, the campaigns and, uh, the John Brown anti-clan committees campaigns and the work that they did in keeping, well, in actually creating a national movement um, and keeping that national movement on the same page or keeping it unified. Um, So you mentioned the stop the killer cops campaign, blue by day, white by night. Um, I'm wondering if you could speak to uh, the local and national registers of the committee and the ways that that was kind of forged, because I think we look around, you know, the United States today, we see that there's a lot of good work happening at local mm-hmm. levels, but how does it um, get to the level of national, becoming a national movement? And I think that uh, the way that you narrate the the story of the committee um, shows. Kind of how organic, how it can how it can do that organically, or how a local local efforts can become something of significance nationally.
3: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. Um, well, like we were saying, the organization really came out of a call, and they were a response, and from that point on, then it was just a continual renegotiation of what is most effective or what could be most useful in supporting movements for self-determination. And with, if that's the compass, right, if that's the main question that you kind of read your campaigns on or make adjustments here or create new chapters by that's a really different set of strategic questions Mm -hmm. um, than a whole other set of questions, which could be, You know, where are we going to get the most people or where are we going to get, you know, the most uh, tweets or, you know, most visibility. Mm -hmm. So it was, again, like the emergence of different chapters was also in response to um, different conditions on the ground. And it looked really different on the ground. Not one chapter was exactly like another Mm-hmm. And uh, it started, of course, like in the, on the East Coast and then emerged also uh, in New England area. There's a couple of chapters that came into being that were shorter lived, but came into being because there was another incarcerated leader who needed support and needed a bit of a network around them to help them get through the lived experience of being incarcerated and imprisoned. Mm -hmm. Or there's other chapters that really emerged, like in Chicago or Austin or San Francisco. There's L.A. Um, Each of these chapters emerged because there was already um, different organizations, different movements, like the Republic of New Africa or Mm -hmm. um, the Black Liberation Army or different uh, like Brown Berets, like in action. So different. Organizations that were fighting for self determination, and in work that were also asking for uh, strategic support, also asking for public presence of white folks that were quite committed to something similar. And so, um, sometimes, yeah, it looked really different in different ways. Uh, in in the Austin chapter, uh, the John Brown Anti Klan Committee really started forming coalitions with the Black Citizen Task Force and the Brown Berets, mm-hmm. creating a strong, broad-based coalition that mm-hmm. was supporting um, like voting rights and registration and people getting jobs, so doing the support work necessary for these like, community-based organizations on the ground. And then also, they were a kind of leadership on the ground, uh, as the John Brown Anti-Clan Committee was uh, going toe to toe with different clan efforts, uh, like Clan Watch. Um, they were, were on the border border watch. Uh, the clan was getting highly militarized on the border, kind of taking up or filling in the role of border patrols. And so then there were the John Brown Anti-Clan committee was organizing against the proliferation of that organizing. So it looked really different in different ways. And then I think in creating like a national response or a national movement, um, there was different aspects of coordination. So John Brown members were both coordinating with local organizations where they were working with on the ground. And then there was also relationships with just broader movements that were happening at the time, like I said, with the Republic of New Africa and the Black Liberation Army. And at different moments, those folks were also kind of providing like guidance or vision around what was needed. So in 1983, when like after the Greensboro massacre, and it was getting very obvious that the Klan and different Nazi formations were starting to make uh, unusual alliances when Reagan was really carving out more space for white supremacist organizing and using hush tones to do it, but also um, like not acknowledging the impact of the Greensboro massacre. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot had shifted in the first three years of the eighties and the, a number of people were kind of pointing to the fact that, um, What we need now is a more unified vision. And so the John Brannan's Anti-Clan Committee, in fact, was more sparse, parsed out. And then in the 80s, in response to those folks and the people that they were working with, decided to strengthen the organization more nationally. And so Mm -hmm. started to come together and share stories across different contexts and start to like kind of take on a more national presence. Even though still it was only 12 chapters throughout the arc of its life, I think it was 13 mm-hmm. years of the organization. But they started to move or try to have a more of a national presence in that way.
2: Mm-hmm. I would and, just really, oh, go ahead.
1: Mm, no, go ahead.
2: <laughs> I would just really organize, I mean, I'm sorry, I'd re- uh, underline sorry. the idea that the John Brown Anti Klan Committee were just one part of a movement uh you know the national anti-clan network anti you know ara uh anti-racist action uh and many you know many more you know people you know even uh, teachers unions were uh were coming up with right. a curriculum to teach anti-racism in their in their cl- classrooms and that that in itself was a risk uh so when we talk about the na- the, the national scope just uh, thinking about there's so much stuff going on both formally in uh, in organizations and networks like the ones we we both mentioned, but also spontaneously, I re- remember people running to uh, Kinko's copies just to make flyers say, "Hey, white supremacist band uh, p- is playing down the street in Berkeley, uh, you know, on Friday. Let's all go, you know, let you know, let's all go and shut th- shut them down." Lots, you know, uh, there was lots of different uh, types of movement going um, going on, not just the anti. Uh,
1: anti-climb committee. Right. And and with that, um, um, I'm wondering if you could tell us more about some of the tactics um, that uh, you describe in the book uh, that the committee kind of like invents. One of my, one of the ones where I had to pause and, and laugh um, was the graffiti sandwiches, the graffiti, the gravel sandwiches. <laughs> um, and so Yeah, I wonder um, if you could just share um, about some of the tactics, but also some of the risks that the activists took on um, in in going and confronting the Klan and and the American Nazi Party. Um, Yeah, and the cops. Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah, well, like you mentioned earlier, um, that at some points, John Brown Anti-Klan Committee was pointing out the fact that the Klan had infiltrated. Some of these institutions, so like police departments, and we're working there, or prison systems, and working there, military, working there, and then there's also, of course, the piece around like those institutions sharing a logic with the Klan. But so there would be particular, you know, demonstrations. There would be rallies where white supremacist groups were getting together, and Trello Laughlin was talking mm-hmm. about how in Austin sometimes. Um, you could go or like at a demo in, in Houston, right? You would go and when you got there, you would see the Klan and the cops chatting it up and you could tell that they were friends and knew each other for a really long time. If not, they were friends uh, in other kinds of contexts. So there was kind of a um, knowing that they were different, but also a deep suspicion of like the inner workings of the, of how those, those uh, formations work together. And so with different tactics, um, I would say that the John Brown Anti-Clan Committee was rather bold and sometimes naive in, in their exploration of what worked. Uh, one thing I appreciate about the organization and throughout the arc of the organization, it's one of the things I think is really smart and beautiful. And one of the most important lessons is how do you adapt over time when conditions change and shift? How do you maintain a principle or a North star, but you might shift form, adjust campaigns and even tactics along the way. And you've mentioned the gravel sandwiches. And I think that that was um, pretty accurate and a reflection of the organization in the early days. like in your face, going to give you a gravel sandwich for lunch. And I don't care if you're a cop or a clan, this is what you're going to get. And that's a kind of confrontation that might be effective or useful in some times. And then over time, especially when uh, in the early eighties and in the Austin chapter, they started to play around with, okay, so if not everybody is going to do the gravel sandwich approach or go directly to the houses of the Klan members or um, out them in their homes or their neighborhoods or their towns? What are other kinds of ways to get more people, more white people into a relationship with these liberation movements that we so much, that we care about so much? And so they started to form coalitions and they started to think about um, different ways for different people to get involved in that. And I think from from the early to mid '80s on, I think in the Chicago chapter especially, and then also in uh, the San Francisco chapter, we're a lot more creative in terms of like, okay, now what is our strategic role within a coalition? So, what is our strategic role in movements for self determination is a kind of strategic relationship, but then that can also be scaled down and to think of like. Okay, if we are known in this kind of way, if we hold this kind of politic or have this kind of quality of presence, how can that be used within a relationship to the NAACP? Right, mm-hmm. if the NAACP doesn't have like cannot afford to put the reputation on the line to go to the house of the police officer who has been a, being accused of responsible for the murder of four black men in Richmond, California, they can't do that. But the John Brown anti klan Committee can. There's different ways that you can play um, that you can leverage uh, a moment in that way. And I think the John Brown anti-Clan committee was quite skilled in that way. And I know James loves the Chicago chapter. So I'm going to let him talk about the graffiti campaign.
2: I think both the graffiti and the punk rock stuff showed a very specific and special moment in the evolution of the John Brown anti-Clan committee. So in Chicago, especially in Uptown, uh, but many other uh, neighborhoods, there was a spate of racial graffiti, which should not be surprising to anybody who knows Chicago, because it is one of uh, one of the hotbeds. Ha- always has been a hot hotbed for mm-hmm. uh, racist far right or, or organizations. Most people are familiar with it through the famous Blues Brothers scene, but. Mm-hmm. During this time, the racist graffiti was going all over the place. The John Brown Anti-Klan Committee could have just chosen to gone and painted it over themselves and taken pictures of themselves doing this brave act and you know getting into tussles with the skinheads. But no, they built a broad coalition of church groups, a few leader, a few arts groups, and labor groups um, to really, really speak out against racist graffiti and then go cover it up. Together, collectively, really building a, using using this this opportunity to build a movement, to build participation, and it also meant working with people that did not share your exact uh, exact politics, your exact version of anti imperialism or whatnot, and negotiating those spaces because that's the trick in coalition is how do you uh, build as broad as possible and still maintain your principles as as an organization. I think they did really well. And what's what was so important about this intervention is that anybody who grew up in the eighties recognizes how graffiti, how the dialogue and graffiti was, mm-hmm. was always deployed in a racist way to just reinforce what, whatever the, the right mes- messages were around morality and race and the degradations of cities, telling stories about, um, about mm-hmm. the cities moving, moving the conversation away from the impacts of neoliberalism during this time, and moving it towards that the problem is your local tagger, right? And all the all the racist codes that they come with that. So they really turned it on their, uh, turned that conversation on its ear. Whether they uh, whether whether they intended to go that far or not, I think they did. And and I'm I believe you know culture you know dealing with with the impacts of, of culture is incredibly important but also uh, for the just the ability to reach hearts and minds isn't something that's only done in the streets many people by by involving themselves in in the punk rock scene coming I mean, with anti mm-hmm. you know anti-racist themed shows opportunities to show music and have speakers you're you are talking about ways to uh, reach out to really angry, uh, angry white kids and come up, come up with, all, uh, you know, come up with wild propositions of what, what to do with that anger and who to be angry at. Uh, I think it's, so it's, it's a, it's one of the, I think it's one of the most special contributions of the John Brown anti, anti-clan committee. Uh, and then you, you see this being expressed, uh, you know, exp- expressed in the famous uh, Oprah Winfrey episode when uh, she had had a uh, members of white Aryan resistance on, and the John Brown anti-clan committee, Howie Emmer was, uh, was in the audience at the time, John Brown member of uh, bringing together anti-racist skinheads in, in the audience to be able to be a counterpoint to, uh, to that. So, you don't get those type of results. You don't move angry white people away from being angry at black people without doing the work and coming up with creative ways of reaching folks with with new ideas.
1: Right. And I'm so glad that you brought that up because I definitely don't think we can talk about the 1980s without talking about cultures being a integral terrain for um, political struggle. And But I also think that um, – The 1980s is kind of what you just brought up about Oprah. That uh, media plays an important role here and uh, TV, TV time, TV airtime. So, um, were there ways that uh, the committee was able to um, get media coverage outside of this, outside of the Oprah um, episode? Um, Were there other ways that they leveraged media?
3: Absolutely, yeah. Um, I'll go back to Austin again. Uh, This was also. The moment where public access television was a tool for communities to use. And it was far more accessible, of course, than what we have access to today. Um, But Trella Laughlin was one of the people that uh, created a show called Let the People Speak. And that was an effort to amplify uh, the campaigns of the Black Citizens Task Force and the Brown Berets. So she would interview different organizers in those groups every week and just have a chance for the Austin community and of course beyond to hear like what's the work they're doing and why and so when you see the Black Citizens Task Force you know in your neighborhood or making demands at city hall, um that gave just their campaigns a far greater reach and then also she was a big part of um establishing uh the shows of those organizations, so that they had their own organization, but she she used and she used the the platform of television also as a strategic counterpoint to the fact that the Klan and David Duke and um other white supremacists were absolutely leveraging media radio stations and public access rate, uh television at that time. And what was really important too was uh, the newspaper that the John Brown Anti-Clan Committee did throughout the arc of the whole organization. So there's actually quite a lot of newspapers that you can find at FreedomArchives.org, uh, and it's just this beautiful, rich or um, movement archive. And the John Brown Anti-Clan Committee is one organization that is documented there. But you can watch the arc and the arguments. And also the uh, editorial skills of the organization grow and shift over time. And they talk about the fact that the Klan, the Klan at the time was doing this multiple strategies where they were trying to remake their public image. You know, uh, Duke was running for Senate in California, while at the same time is supporting the Klan groups on the border. And so there is like both on the ground and underground, as well as above ground and electoral strategies happening at the same time. And the John Brand Anti-Clan Committee was writing about those things, putting out articles, you know, getting into debates and deliberation publicly and trying to spark, um, yeah, a kind of deliberation that maybe we don't get to see so much today.
1: Mm-hmm. So, what are some of the legacies of the John Brown Committee? What happened to the committee? Where did the activists end up?
3: Um, We talk about it in the book is that there was no clear moment, no group meeting decision where the organization decided to end. Different chapters completed in their own kind of way and kind of unceremoniously. Um, But another important lesson of the organization is. Just how it was that they carried those principles, those original principles into other movements, into other organizations, into founding or supporting ACT UP and different ACT UP chapters. Also in Chicago, and New Orleans, um, you know, people who are organizing for and putting pressure on pharmaceutical companies and government to get access and resources for people dying of AIDS. And those same political principles continued of who is being impacted and why is that happening? And then the ability to take bold risk and take action, right? And letting that be what is Mm -hmm. most important and letting those visions like really come out in that process. And then a number of the uh, founders of the organization too went on to found um, prison support organizations, and are still in them today. And I think uh, not only were a number of people in the John Brannist anti clan Committee, like the Constellation, some folks did end up going to prison for their political work. And so then they had also this experience of being incarcerated, um, along with the, the fact that the organization had always, from the start, had been a part of uh, supporting people who are imprisoned. And so uh, that anti-racism work, that anti-colonial work, kind of then extended further into uh, AIDS work and ACT UP work, but also in the early stages of the prison industrial complex, they were still organizing around how AIDS even impacted those who were incarcerated or who had access to legal support or who had access to different kinds of knowledge. And I think James wants to pick up on that thread too.
2: Uh, the uh, the women The women who really uh, threw them threw themselves into the anti uh, prison work, uh, Nancy kershen Pam, Pam Fadem, Linda Evans. I mean, they had something to uh, to grapple with, which is the uh, understanding. You know of, of what a blurry line it is between being a social prisoner and being a political prisoner in the United in the United States, and a lot of a lot of their intellectual work, a lot of their activism, I think, is one of the links between the uh, you know, the nineteen seventies prisoner prisoner rights movement and what eventually became known as uh, as abolitionism. Not not too many people mm-hmm. were using the word prison abolition at the time, even though it. We first see it being used as early as 1973, but it wasn't in, you know, kind of mm-hmm. common common parlance at the at the time. And so, as they were supporting people who uh, who were there for political activities, uh, they were you know they were also becoming much more aware of the um, you know of the growing prison industrial complex and doing a lot of foundation uh, foundational work that we still see uh, being carry um, you know carried on. Uh, carried on today by organizations like critical resistance and many, many dozen, dozens of others. And I was very, very touched. Maybe hopefully a historian listening to this out there will pick up on this. We'll give this, this idea to you for free. The <laughs> new, the new left, uh, new left uh, pl- prisoners of war and political prisoners that went on to do, do groundbreaking popular education and, uh, mutual aid work around AIDS, uh, is something that I think, uh, scholars will be looking at for, you know, hopefully for many years because it's, uh, it's certain it's things, approaches and tactics, uh, that have been incorporated into main, mainstream harm reduction, mainstream AIDS, AIDS approach. But at the time it was, uh, you know, it was, you know, it was literally, uh, information that was snuck into the, uh, the, the prison and, uh, and, uh, and snuck, snuck back mm-hmm. out, uh, to out, outside supporters. So, um, so yeah, uh, the fight against white supremacy, racism and, and everything happens in um, some loud ways and it happens in some soft and some soft clandestine ways, like, like I just mentioned.
1: Right. And I think I'll, I'll, uh, Um kind of add to perhaps what you just said about um our understanding of the left. So I guess a question, maybe perhaps both of you can chime in. Um but what does our what is this, what does this knowledge of the John Brown committee add to our understanding of the left in the last two to three decades of the 20th century?
3: It's a fabulous question. Um,
2: what's your take? (laughs) Yeah.
3: (laughs) I think the John Brown anti-Klan committee is a worthy organization to study, um, for like the full range of what they were doing. And we were excited to write about this organization because there's also many aspects to the organization that you know we get the vantage of hindsight, and we get to make our assessments today based on our experience today, and so we can look back and be like, "What were they thinking?" or "What was that about?" But what is really important as activists and organizers, but also as uh, writers with history and memories of these folks who have dedicated their lives to these movements. Um, is the ability to share information across generations and then to keep going. I think that was one of the most beautiful things about the organization and the people who opened their hearts and shared their stories with us about this project, you know, a number of decades ago, where mm-hmm. people put their bodies on the line and constantly renegotiated what would be most effective right now. And They were anti racist and anti imperialist. And that was at the center of the organization. It wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't a box to check off. It wasn't a thing just to do so that you can keep doing what you're doing. It was the thing that they were organizing around. And I think the fact that the organization lasted so long and through really important big changes in the US political system. And the political terrain and the kinds of questions that they kept asking themselves. And then the fact that most of them are still in motion in different kinds of ways today. There's mm-hmm. something really important and valuable about that of like, what does it mean? And how do you put these politics into motion and have it change the rest of your life? And like, have your life organize around a political commitment, mm-hmm. not in any kind of like, idealistic, venerated way, but like, no, these are actual principles that you organize your life around.
2: Right. Well, maybe the, uh, you may, you know, maybe book publishers and academics and filmmakers might put a temporary uh, moratorium on future works on the sixties and look at the seventies and eighties that the John Brown anti clan committee were a part of. Just one one important part of and look at the ways that the left survived when when everybody, you know, everybody thought it was on the ropes and gone left activity uh, ranging from, you know, from militancy all the way to electoral work and all points in between uh, the the left persisted. Uh, So if there's a ray of optimism in this book, I think that's one of them.
1: Right. I agree. Um, so let's move to the 21st century. Um, I love that the book is framed um, as having lessons for today's movements. So can you distill um, what some of the lessons are that we should draw from the story of the committee for confronting all of the issues that we have today, from the carceral state, widespread inequality, um, just anti-Black, anti-queer violence all around us, climate change, so many things. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. What lesson should we draw from this?
3: Uh, Well, we talked about a number of them. I think in general, it can be kind of summed up of what is the practice of solidarity. And I Mm -hmm. think that in the time of COVID right now, we are in the same question, although it takes on a different kind of context of what is mutual interest? What is mutual aid? How do we actually work together in a way that lifts each other up, but also acknowledges that certain people just experience a disproportionate impact in a racialized capitalist, our society, and especially in the US in in a kind of way. And so like that question gets to be an evolving question and, a, and it can be a question of creativity. It can be a question that gets to open our minds and open our visions out. I think that um, the John Brown Anti-Clan Committee is also an important example, especially for folks in social movements or anybody who's studying state repression mm-hmm. or the ways in which movements ebb and flow and the different components to that. Um, and that has to do with grand juries. And when people are willing to take larger, bigger risks to confront the state or to push back on corporations, what is the crackdown that happens? And then how do people come together? And I think the John Brown anti clan Committee is a really good example of um, kind of navigating the waters first from like self-righteousness or like a really strong political line that pushes people away. And then the fine-tuned skills that you need to still have a political line but that draws people closer and I think that they are a really important study in in knowing how movements have done that previously so today that we don't need to recreate wheels
2: well I hope that people would read this book and come away with the same burning sense of solidarity that the John Brown anti-Klan committee had towards their work and take action, no matter whether they had self-interest in it or not. But if that's not going to work for folks, I will just remind people that this history shows us that as the James great writer, James Baldwin said, if they come for you in the morning, they'll be back for me at night by allowing these movements to grow both on the streets and in the electoral arena that sinks all boats of eventually the public policy that Reagan was able to push through certainly uh, harmed black and brown people first, but then kept, mo- uh, kept on moving uh, through union busting, uh, through the slashing of the social safety net, through the decimation of educational opportunities and uh, has harmed the working and middle and poor white, cl- uh, uh, white folks as well. And, uh, so I hope people take, take that and then apply what, you know, take action in any, in any way that makes sense in their own communities.
1: Right. I like that. Yeah. We should forge solidarities. We should build coalitions to take action. Those are, yes, three important
2: lessons you can learn. Good old fashioned family (laughs) values. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Well, Hillary and James, we've taken up a lot of your time. But before we go, I want to ask about what projects you're working on now.
3: In a couple of weeks, on May 12th, I have another book coming out. It's uh, a book for climate activists around the world, but it's also geared towards what's happening in Europe, where far-right and racist groups are really leveraging the climate crisis to forward their agenda. And the booklet kind of breaks down why it is that nature and climate can swing both left and right. And it kind of Mm -hmm. outlines where left kind of, where left movements fall into the holes that really uh, right and racist narratives get to grow. And it looks at six different countries and then it poses some important questions for climate activists around, what does it mean to be fighting climate change in a society that is growingly authoritarian and has fascist movements here. And if we don't take into account uh, those formations, then we're really missing a big political piece in what is politically possible. So that book is called um, Burning Earth, Changing Europe, How the Racist Right Exploits the Climate Crisis and What We Can Do About It.
1: Okay. Congratulations. That sounds like a very important book. I look forward to checking
3: it out. Cool.
2: Yeah, I can hardly James, wait for what that are you book. On? Well, I'm taking advantage <laughs> of uh, having so much time at home to start research on two projects. I'm taking a bit of a break from uh, awesome white people uh, doing things in in the movement uh, themed, and I'm looking at in-home support service workers, reproductive labor, and unionization, and also uh, I'm starting to write about the all the different rock and rollers that did uh that went into the prisons not just johnny cash but uh loretta lynn and uh, many other musicians okay. like the cramps that went into institutions and performed so uh just use using this time to expand my my horizons and uh do a lot of writing
1: well, that sounds like two great projects as well um I want to thank you for being on the show today. Um, I really enjoyed it. And I think that we learned a lot and covered a lot, actually. So thanks for being here and take care.
2: Thank you so much.